If you uh, have your Bible, I would invite you to turn to the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 3 this morning, or excuse me, chapter 2, getting ahead of myself. Uh, we're continuing uh, in the series on Ephesians. Today, going to look at the first 10 verses of chapter uh, 2. I don't think these verses need much introduction. Uh, they are wonderful verses, probably the greatest summary of the gospel or the good news of Jesus that you find anywhere in the Bible. So I'm just going to read them. And then the sermon will be done. Nope. Uh, I'll still have a sermon, but I'm going to read them and let it, let, let it sit with you. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Wow. Uh, we said a few times in the series that the city of Ephesus was the site of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple of Artemis, do you remember that? It was uh, over on a hilltop overlooking the city, a very large temple complex. Almost every part of life, I can't overstate this, almost every part of life in ancient Ephesus revolved around that temple. It was the economic center of the city. It was obviously the religious center of the city. It was also the educational center of the city where so many of the kids were trained uh, by the priests who served Artemis. I mean, it, it was the party center. It was everything. And I'm sure that because it was a wonder of the world, many of the residents of Ephesus had a lot of pride in that. I'm sure they also said to people, you have to see it to believe it. You got to be here and experience it for yourself to fully take in how wonderful it is. Uh, for example, it's kind of like uh, wonders that we have in our own country. Uh, I've seen pictures of the Grand Canyon I've watched some documentaries, my share of documentaries about the Grand Canyon. I even know some friends who've been there, and they've shown me their personal pictures and told me their stories. But I guarantee you, anybody who's actually been there would tell me, Stan, you don't even know. You don't know half of it. You have to stand there, and you have to actually see it. You've got to walk down in it to fully understand the immensity of it. Well, Paul, in th these verses, it seems like what he's doing is he's trying to tell these Christians, hey... Maybe you're slightly disappointed because you've left the glory of Artemis behind and you've come to just to Jesus, where you get to meet in people's houses and 
little small rented rooms and somebody just reads the Bible to you and you come and you have a meal of little bread and a little wine. And that seems like a letdown after Artemis. Boom, you know, all the pizzazz of the great wonder of the world. And Paul says, wait a minute, there is a wonder in the Christian church and for Christian people that is far beyond the eye can see. It's the wonder of the gospel. And just like the Temple of Artemis, just like the Grand Canyon, the wonder of the gospel is only known by those who personally experience it. That's the whole point this morning. The wonder of the gospel is only known by those who personally experience it. That's why Paul begins verse 1 with you. And you were dead, right? And he goes on to tell us three wonders of the gospel. If you look at your bulletin, I have this outline for you. There are three wonders of the gospel that you can know by personal experience. Okay, number one, you were dead. Number two, God made us alive. Number three, we should walk. All right, those are the three wonders of the gospel. You were dead, God made us alive, and we should now walk. All right, let's look at them in turn. First of all, you were dead. Uh, Paul, in verses uh, one through three, describes the human condition in a very dark way. He says, you, when God came to you and called you to belong to Jesus, you weren't sick in sin. You weren't disabled in sin. You weren't slightly, you know, at a disadvantage because of your sin. You were dead. Stone cold, as dead as a doorknob dead in your trespasses and sins. Uh, By the way, that's what God had said way back to Adam and Eve when he first gave them the law. And he gave them a rule from his own mouth. He said, in the day that you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat, you will surely die. And here Paul says, God is a person of his word. God is a God of his word. People died that day. But it was a death, not merely physical, okay? Now, it is true that physical death comes from sin, and people die, and it's a sad reality of life in this world that people die, and that is a result of rebellion against God. But there is a death deeper than that. Actually, there's a death underlying that, which is so deep and so profoundly, so profoundly tragic. It's a spiritual death, what he describes here as a walking death. Look at verse 1. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. When you followed the course of this world, when you followed the prince of the power of the air, and when you followed the desires of your own mind and body. Did you notice that? It's a walking death. Paul's talking not about physical death here. He's talking about a death that you have even while you're alive. It's what sin does to us. It it renders us dead. It it makes us dead even while we're still drawing physical breath. A good word to describe the death that we walk around with is the word domination. You, You can use another word, slavery. And he says here there is a slavery and a domination because of sin from three parties. Three different masters rule over the human heart. The first one is the world. He said, you were dead because you followed the course of the world. You followed the winds of the world around you. You, It's almost like we don't have a mind of our own or a heart of our own. We just do whatever we're being pressured to do or whatever we're being seduced into doing all the time. 
going here and there. Even when what we're being pressured to do is not what God wants us to do, we still just do it. That is a type of slavery that is also a type of death. He says also the devil's involved. Uh, that's what he means by the prince of the power of the air, which is a really fancy way to describe Satan. He rules over the air, meaning he's, he's an unseen power. He's up in the heavens. He's, he's, up in the, he's unseen. He's up in the atmosphere, if you will, uh, ruling over all the other powers of the world. Uh, he was the one that got sin started in the first place. And he took the course of the world and he turned it from God to himself, to rebellion. And now he's still doing the same thing. Uh, like we said in uh, last Sunday night's lesson on Genesis, the devil has not had to develop too many new strategies. Why? Because the old ones still work just as well on us. Uh, he doesn't have to develop any new temp temptations because they're still working on me and they're still working on you. So he just keeps repeating the same strategy, the same play over and over again. But hey, just like football, we'll run it till they stop it. You know? And the devil just runs it till he stops it. And here it says, because of sin, we're not stopping it. We're just going wherever Satan wants us to go. And then the last one's kind of surprising, but it's you yourself. That's a part of this conspiracy. He says there, uh, we followed not only the devil, not only the world, but we also followed the passions of our flesh, verse 3. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Uh, this is against all that our culture would say about, uh, here's what life uh, is about. Discovering who you are inside and expressing it. You know, Being who you want to be, doing what you want to do, following your heart, right? That's the Disney lesson. In every single movie, follow your heart. Here it says, well, it's not so simple as that. It's not so simple as that. In fact, most of the time, when human beings follow our heart, when we follow our hearts, we're most of the time going in a very bad direction. Have you ever noticed that? You don't always want what you should want. You don't always dislike what you should dislike. It's just not so simple as Disney tells us. You can't just follow your heart. The Bible says the heart is desperately sick in the book of Jeremiah. It's wicked, the human heart. And notice Paul said in verse 1, he's not just talking about people out there. He's talking about you. That's what he says in verse 1. You, he's talking about me. You were dead in the trespasses and sins because you were under dominion. And to top it all off, you're also under condemnation from God. Uh, verse 3, at the very end, he says, You were, we were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath. Dead because we're under dominion, and under dominion because we're under condemnation. Somebody says, Paul, wow, you are, you're a real party killer. <laughs> you're a killjoy. Wow, this is dark. Well... Think about it. Paul is not willing, this is what one writer says, he's not willing to whitewash the human condition for one very important reason. Because as soon as Paul whitewashes the human condition, he has opened himself up to propose a superficial solution. Think about it. When you whitewash your life, when I whitewash my life, we are opening ourselves up to superficial solutions Okay, 
solutions that really don't work, instead of the deeper, heart-changing, life-changing solution that God wants to bring us through His Son, Jesus Christ. The critical piece is there, you've got to understand the darkness to see the light. I mean, right now, if you walked outside and looked up at the sky, I promise you there are stars out there. I promise you, they're out there. They never go away. Why can't you see them? It's not dark. Stars shine best against the dark of night, against the black of the night sky. They don't shine very well against the blue of the daytime sky. Same thing with the gospel. You don't know the good news unless you know the bad news. And if you minimize the bad news, you're going to also, whether you know it or not, you're going to also minimize the good news. And it's going to have less of an effect in your heart when you do that. It's going to have less power to rework your heart the way that it's supposed to rework your heart. Y'all, I think people have always done this. Minimize, lowball, underestimate how bad the situation is spiritually between us and God. I think maybe, this is a big statement that I can't prove, but I'll say it anyway. I think maybe in the modern world we're better at it than, we've, than anyone's ever been. And here's why. The number one strategy people have always used to lowball the sin problem is distraction. And we are masters at distracting ourselves. One writer 37 years ago wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And that was 37 years ago, but I think what he wrote there was still true. I mean, we, we just find out all these ways to just amuse ourselves, to entertain ourselves, to divert our attention. That's the number one way we pass the buck. And when we do that, we're always going to lower the glory of Jesus Christ coming to die for us on the cross and rise from the dead and ascend into heaven and send us the Spirit. We're going to minimize that because we've minimized the depths of the problem. My favorite uh, story outside of the Bible that explains the Bible is the Pilgrim's Progress. I talk about it all the time. I, I think you should read it. I I'm reading it with my kids right now. It's a great story. Christian is the pilgrim, and he's going from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And the reason why he knows he has to go there is he's read a book given to him by a man named Evangelist. He gave him a book, the Bible. And as he reads it, he realizes he has a burden on his back, sin, that he cannot get off, that's crushing him and weighing him down. And Evangelist said, there's only one way to get rid of your burden. You've got to go through the narrow gate over there. Way over there, you've got to go through the narrow gate. And when you get there, a man named Interpreter will tell you how to get to the cross because that's the only place that your burden can be removed. And so Christian starts off. But on the way to the narrow gate, he meets a man named Worldly. And Worldly says, oh, poor, poor Christian. You don't have to do all that. Don't listen. Evangelist, he is a buzzkill. He's a terrible guy. He's so, so serious. Here's what I'll do for you. We've built a town of our own, halfway between the city of destruction and the narrow gate. It's a halfway house. You can go live there, and all you have to do is have fun. There's all kinds of exciting things to do, great activities in this halfway city. And if you just distract yourself, it happened for me, it'll happen for you, you'll just forget about your burden. It won't bother you anymore. You don't have to worry about all this cross stuff and squeezing through a narrow gate that's hard to get through. Just distract yourself and you'll forget it. 
That's what I'm talking about. Here's a, here's a very, I think, sharp question for us this morning, but an important question. To what degree are you distracting yourself to death? To what degree am I not listening to what these first three verses are saying about me, and instead I'm listening to worldly, you know, the character who would say, all you got to do is amuse yourself. All you got to do is just make light of things and forget about it. I mean, that's the number one way. You feel guilty? Are, are you feeling guilty? Just go do something else. Go get your mind off of it. Think about something else. You're feeling ashamed of something you've done? Uh, go find ten people who will just encourage you and tell you what you want to hear. I mean, isn't that what we do? And Paul says, don't do that. One of the wonders of the gospel is that, the, is that God found you when you were dead. You weren't half alive. You weren't on life support. Uh, you weren't just disabled. You were dead. And from that dead condition, God had to raise you up out of your misery. And that's why Jesus says, if, you're not, if you don't know you're blind, you'll never see. If you don't become like a child, you'll never enter. If you don't recognize you're on the same level as the prostitute and the tax collector, you'll never come into the kingdom of God. Jesus said all that. Because he was saying, when you lowball the problem, you're going to lowball me. And you're going to miss me. First thing. Second wonder of the gospel is a little happier. God made us alive. God made us alive. Now, this, this should show you a little bit why it's important to know we are dead in our sins and not just disabled. Because a disabled person does not need a resurrection. That's, that's overkill, right? Uh, you don't need to resurrect a sick man. You do need to resurrect a dead man or a dead woman. And that's exactly what the Bible says God did. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. I mean, he's telling us here the roots of this whole salvation thing. It came not from us. It came from God himself. Because of his nature as a merciful God. And because he decided, out of his own free will, to set his love on sinners like us, he sent forth Jesus, his son. And through Jesus, it says, verse 5, he made us alive again. He resurrected us again with Jesus. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up with Jesus when Jesus ascended on high to, to rule over everything. And he seated us with Jesus in the heavenly places. So that we have a place actually on the throne with Jesus. A place at the banquet table up in heaven with Jesus. Because of what God did through the resurrection. You know, in, in the days before Jesus died on the cross, he performed his greatest miracle. Uh, his friend Lazarus was sick. And uh, the family sent for Jesus and said, hey, come, your, your friend Lazarus is sick, come and heal him. And it says, because Jesus loved him, he waited four days before responding to the message. That's a strange statement, right? Uh, you, you, someone sends for you, hey, your friend is sick, and you wait four days, and that's because you love him? Yet, Jesus, I mean, Jesus has got a strange love sometimes. And Lazarus, in that four days, dies. 
And only then does Jesus come, and he shows up late. He misses the funeral, shows up at the grave after the man's already buried. And remember what he does? His greatest miracle. No one's ever done anything like it. Lazarus! What did he say? Come forth, right? I mean, just he yells at a dead man. A man so dead, it, he already had begun to stink. That's what it says. Lazarus, come forth. And what happens? He comes out. He comes out. I mean, the dead man got up, walked out of the tomb, apparently maybe rolled the stone away. I don't know. I mean, somehow got out of the tomb, still wrapped up in his grave clothes, walking around reunited with his family, fully restored to life. Why did Jesus do that before he died on the cross and rose from the dead? Why did he choose to let his friend die so that he could raise him? I think it's got to be to show us what it was Jesus was about to die for and rise for. Because all of us are not just sick, we're dead, like we've just seen. And dead people don't need medicine. Dead people don't need assistance. Dead people don't need, you know, uh, life preservers thrown out to them. Dead people need only one thing. That is a resurrection, new life rushing into their dead body to bring them back up again. Right? And that's exactly what Jesus did. It says here that the resurrection... The ascension and the reign of Jesus, all three of those things are things that God gives to us, he puts inside of us, whenever we believe in Jesus. Uh, did you notice how it said uh, there in verse 5, by grace you've been saved, not by your works, by grace. And then he says it again, uh, down there in verse 8, this is, you're saved by grace through faith. It's, it's grace on God's side and then faith on ours. That saves a person. But then Paul is quick to say, even this faith, I think he's talking about faith there in verse 8 when he says, for this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Even the faith itself that comes from us is not ours. It's not something we invented or made up by our own strength. It's something that God gives us as a gift so that no one can boast. The blind man that Jesus healed could have partially boasted because he was sent by Jesus to wash and he went and did it and he washed and then he was healed, right? Uh, the woman who reached out and touched the hem of his garment could have a little bit of boasting. Hey, I, I had the presence of mind to reach out and touch him. Could Lazarus boast? Was there anything Lazarus could say, hey, y'all... I came up out of that grave, you know. No, there's no way. Because he was dead. And the scripture says here that we, dead in our sins, yet were loved by God. We were loved even when we were God's enemies. And when Jesus died on the cross and raised, and was raised, we too, by faith, were raised with him. Isn't that amazing? Uh, people often try to, to deal with their sin by 
hiding and pretending, right? And excusing their sins away. And yet here's a solution way better than hiding, pretending, excusing, downplaying, distracting yourself. Here's a way better solution. Your sins getting buried in the tomb with Jesus dead, never to rise again, and then you, a new person, raised with Jesus. That's a better solution. And the Bible says the wonder of the gospel is nothing less than that has happened. A union with Christ has happened between every believer in Jesus. You're one with Jesus by faith. So that when he rose, you died and were raised again. When he ascended into heaven, which he did, and went above all the rulers and authorities, you shared in his victory. And you even now share in his victory and his power over death and over hell and over condemnation. And as Jesus reigns on high over everything, which he does, whether we you know, see it or not or whether we feel it or not, he reigns, we share that reign with him. We have communion with the king. And this morning as we come to the communion table, we come to a table on earth, but we believe by the Holy Spirit we have access to a table in heaven. And we sit down together with Jesus in heaven where he feeds us with all the benefits of his work. Fully brought into our lives. Y'all, this is so much better than simply trying to weigh our good deeds against our bad deeds. Or excuse our sins because they're not as bad as so-and-so's. Or hide because no one should know the secrets of my life, including God, right? Those are bad strategies for dealing with sin. Those are dead men's tricks that do not raise the dead man. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, dying and rising again by the power of God, that'll raise a dead man or a dead woman. That's the wonder of the gospel. When the Ephesian Christians were meeting together, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, and they were worshiping Jesus whom they couldn't see, and everybody was making fun of them because they had turned their back on Artemis. Paul says, don't let them despise you. Don't believe what they're saying. Don't follow the course of the world. You've got something way better than what's on that hill over there. Because y'all, this morning, let me tell you what the, hill, what the temple of Artemis looks like today. In 2022. Rubble. Nothing. Guess what we're doing this morning? The same thing Paul and the Ephesians were doing 2,022 years ago. Reveling in the same gospel that has not faded one bit. Has not crumbled an inch. Isn't that good? The wonder of the gospel. This morning, let me ask you a question. And I know you may not... Maybe you're not someone who believes in Jesus. Maybe you are, if you're watching in or if you're here today. I'm going to ask everybody this question. Are you aware that you are one with Christ by faith? Or are you aware that you could be one with Christ by faith? And don't you see that that solution, God's solution, is way better than what you're trying to do right now with your guilt and shame? with your sense of powerlessness and worthlessness in your life, with your loneliness. Don't you see? For God to take a sinner like me and a sinner like you and put them together, married with Jesus, one flesh, one spirit together with Christ, what a miracle. What a wonder. That's the second thing. 
The last thing today, the last wonder of the gospel, we should walk. You were dead, God made us alive, and we should walk. I love this, verse 10. Paul says, we're not saved by works. Got to get that out of your head. There's no salvation by works that you do, whether they're internal or external. But, he says, we are God's workmanship. Which I love that word, verse 10, workmanship. Um, what does that word you know, impress on you as you hear it? Workmanship. Uh, to me, it reminds me of the work of an artist. It's not just you know, God has an assembly line where he mass produces Christians. Uh, workmanship implies hands-on, handmade, as, as, the, um, as it's popular to say today, bespoke. <laughs> uh, God creates bespoke artifacts, you know, bespoke things. You know, he, he does things uh, not in mass quantities. He does things particularly with particular people, hands-on. In fact, the word there for workmanship in Greek is where we get our word poem from in English. A poem. You don't just throw a poem together, right? You don't just put a bunch of words down and scramble them and you have a poem. A poem takes careful thought and careful editing and careful revision over and over again until you get the poem just right. Here's the great thing. This passage tells us we went from dead to being God's poetry. From following Satan and self and the world and being a complete train wreck to being a work of art, a masterpiece of God himself through Jesus Christ. And because that is true, even though we're not saved by works, certainly because we're God's workmanship, it is certainly true that we are saved for works. We're not saved by them, but we are saved for them. That's a critical thing to, to get you know, in, in our heads. I mean, think about a fruit tree. This is maybe a philosophical question. It's kind of like a chicken or egg question, but I think there's a right answer to it. Uh, is an orange tree an orange tree because it produces oranges? Or does it produce oranges because it's an orange tree? Right? Does an orange tree produce oranges because it's an orange tree? Or does it, is it an orange tree because it produces oranges? I think there's a right answer to that. And I think it's the second one, I mean, or the first one. I said it both ways. So it's, you, you know which one it is. An orange tree produces oranges because it's already an orange tree. It doesn't become an orange tree because it suddenly starts producing oranges, right? It produces what, it, what is already its nature to produce. And so when we were dead in sins, apart from Jesus, I want to tell you, the only thing you will produce is death and destruction and sin and ruin. That's the only thing I will produce apart from Jesus. There's no way I can produce anything better than that. But when by faith I'm connected to Jesus, I become, you become God's poem. His artistry, we have a new nature that now can, can begin, not only can, but will begin to produce good fruits in our lives. And when we produce good fruits, it will help us to experience the wonder of the gospel over and over again. When a Christian obeys God because he loves God or she loves God, that moment is a moment to experience the wonder of the gospel. 
It's not just a matter of checking off a box that I did. Well, God told me to do it. I did it. Good to go. The wonder of doing something good that God told you to do is to say, wow, I can't believe I just did that. I did that. Ten years ago, I would not have done that. Maybe two weeks ago, I would not have responded to that situation the way I just responded to it. Wow, this must mean God is at work in me, making me his poem. It helps you enter in to the wonder of the gospel better. When a Christian obeys God, it also helps you express wonder. It says here that God created us in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. It's, it's like, like God has, has already got a plan for each one of his children, already a plan of the good works that he wants us to do. And so the, the doing of the good things that God has commanded us to do is one way we express that we are awestruck by his grace and mercy and by his love. It's a way to express our love back to God. The other thing it does is it helps us spread wonder. You experience wonder, you express wonder, but you also spread it. Jesus said, when people see your good works, they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. And the one thing that the Christian heart, the heart that's been renewed by the gospel, wants to do most is to spread the praise of God. Because we love God. We know how he's treated us. We know he's treated us far better than we deserve. We want the praise of God to be spread from shore to shore all around. And so one way to do that is to walk out the new identity God has given you. No longer a ruined dead person, but a poem of God. An exciting adventure of every day opening up the Bible and discovering, okay, what do you want me to do today? What new thing do you want to work on in my life today, Lord? Have your way in me. I surrender all to you. Isn't that good? It's something that we don't think about very much. Sometimes we're, we're so afraid of <clears throat> just simply being moralistic, you know? Like, well, if you, if you say too much about living and doing good works, people are going to think they're saved by good works. As if the solution to that is to say it doesn't matter what we do because we're saved by grace. When in reality, grace is the solution to both of those things. Uh, understanding the wonder of the gospel solves both the problem of being a legalist, moralistic, self-righteous person, but it also saves us from the problem of thinking it doesn't matter what we do and who cares what I do because I'm saved anyway. Because that heart doesn't fully understand that they're a poem of God. A work of art recreated through the death, and resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Just like Paul wanted the Ephesians to remember that they had something much greater than one of the seven wonders of the world. They had the wonder of the world in their relationship with Jesus. That's what I want y'all to understand this morning. We, together, Greater Hope Church, our people, y'all, we have something in Christ that the world cannot compare anything else to. We have the privilege of not only experiencing and delighting in the wonder of this, we have the opportunity to spread the wonder throughout town, to spread the wonder all around our area, around Polk County. Fill it with the wonder of the gospel. What a calling. What a privilege.
Amen? Let's pray together.